This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. Tonight's show is called Race to 100% Renewables. It's the great debate from the Sustainable Living Festival and the debaters were looking at should we go by incrementalism, small steps or should we demand the whole hog? Join the festival's annual Great Debate as leaders of 100% renewables from around the country pitch their strategies for winning the race to renew. You will hear Cassie O'Connor, who was the former Tasmanian Minister for Climate Change, Craig Wilkins, Chief Executive Officer of Conservation South Australia, Miwa Tomonaga from our own Beyond Zero Emissions radio team, Janet Rice, Federal Senator for Victoria, and Cam Walker, Friends of the Earth National Campaigns Coordinator. We have had to edit it down to the time available, but you will hear the MC, Miriam Lyons, who is GetUp's senior campaigner here and there. Thank you to Roger for editing this program and to Chris Gross for the original recording. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. I hope you enjoy the great debate. Race to 100% renewables. How do we get there? There's an energy revolution going on, and my state of South Australia is at the forefront, not just nationally, but internationally. The pace of change of what's happening on the ground in South Australia is breathtaking. We have to hold on to our hats. It is that fast. But I'm still amazed that a lot of people actually don't know what is really going on. So I thought I'd start with, to get some stats out the way. 41% of our power in South Australia is produced by wind and solar. 41%. And AEMO, the Australian energy market operator, is forecasting that will be 50% in a year. It is increasing that quickly. Put, put that into perspective, <laughs> um, I think Victoria, oh, please, um, my, my fellow colleagues here, around 7 or 8%, I think, in, in, in comparison... SA has half of all wind farms in Australia. We have the highest percentage of household rooftop solar, and that's well over a quarter of all households, and it's approaching a third. The energy market operator says within a decade, all our daytime demand will come from rooftop solar. And as a real glimmer of the future, Tuesday, September 30 last year, a normal working day between 9.30 and 6, rooftop solar and wind produced over 100% of our state's electricity needs. Thank you. It, it is remarkable. And it's a stuff of fantasy five years ago. And this remarkable transformation from zero to 40% has occurred in just 15 years with not much fuss, no blackouts, stability, security. I can distinctly remember a few years ago people saying there was an upper limit of 20%. And we've just smashed that. Every day we're rewriting the rule book, and it's well ahead of government targets. It's not led by government. It has a momentum all of its own. So how do we get there? 
First thing, we've got a great natural resource. Sun-rich, fantastic wind resources. Secondly, our power prices are actually higher than other places around the country. And that's not because of wind power. This was actually before the first wind farm was built in South Australia. We had higher power prices. Thirdly, we've had a a pretty sympathetic sort of social environment. We've had a local manufacturer of solar hot water, and so houses have always kind of had solar hot water in South Australia, so we've always always had had that connection to solar. Some really good entrepreneurs. We've had some state government leadership. There's been some, you know, a fair bit of empty symbolism, but there's also been some really good stuff. Uh, We've had some, uh, you know, great planning regimes for wind, um, we've had innovations like Australia's first solar feed-in scheme, which sort of set the benchmark for the rest of the country. And as a result, it just went gangbusters. And for all those four reasons, and particularly the, the, the good resource and the high prices, the renewable energy target um, investments have poured into our state and just roared ahead. So what difference is it making? The private owner of our poles and wires, um, SA Power Networks, grudgingly accepts that PV solar reduces stress on the network, increases stability during heat waves by pushing peaks later in the day and cutting their length. We have a depressing of demand because of household solar, which delays the need for new investments, keeping prices low. We have um, uh, wholesale prices being kept really low because of, of wind. Real gap, though, still with our retail prices, but the wholesale prices are, um, are lower than a decade ago. So now there is a legitimate and credible push for 100% renewables. And it's not just bleeding hearts like me. It's the state government's main climate economic advisers saying it is possible. And that call is being increasingly echoed by our Premier and others, most recently at the Climate Talks in Paris. Last year, my organisation, the Conservation Council, commissioned Dr Mark Diesendorf from the University of New South Wales to model if 100% possible, 100% renewable energy was actually possible. So his team used years of real-time data matched with detailed weather results. This is South Australian data, ran hourly simulations, and yes, he said, absolutely, it was possible within just 15 years. The Bruce McAvaney of the renew, uh, renewable energy sort of commentary world, Giles Parkinson from Renew, renew Economy, using that AEMO, the Energy Market um, uh, modelling um, has looked at uh, this sort of rapid transformation scenario looking forward. And they and AEMO uh, are suggesting that our solar, which is currently around 7%, will increase fivefold by about 2025, 2030. Our wind, currently 33%, nearly double. Add in some large solar, some energy efficiency, some demand management, and some judicious investment in peaking flexible, dispatchable options, the ones that can jump in when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, like uh, biogas peaking plants, solar thermal, pumped hydro. That 100% scenario is possible and credible. So that's the energy market operator saying that. But the real sign that 100% renewable in South Australia is a real thing, it's a thing, is that we're actually getting real disruption and currently some full-on challenges. In a couple of months' time, our last coal-fired power station will close, along with the mines that supply them. Um, Even though it's been sort of forecast for a while, the actual announcement was was sudden. It was scary for the local community because it was a big employer. It was a bombshell. And it happened because economically, coal just cannot compete with wind and solar in South Australia anymore. And gas is filling it as well. 
And this is exactly what should be happening in a transition. Dirty gets closed down, clean replaces it. It's fantastic. AEMO has made it very clear, coal withdrawal in South Australia is not affecting stability of the grid. It can happen, we can cope with it. However, in a market-led system, the big utilities are pricing uncertainty. And there's a fair bit of speculation around some gaming and some union busting and all sorts of other things going on. But what's happening is our forward prices, particularly for big industry, are roaring up in South Australia at that moment. Now, this is not surprising in some ways because you're reducing the supply by closing down a big station, and what happens is other alternatives come in and replace it. That's just normal. It's temporary. It's expected. But it needs to be managed carefully. We need to smooth those peaks and troughs of supply and demand through support, through regulation, through clear signals. Some parts of Germany, which are also sort of matching South Australia for this kind of transformation... They have fixed prices for industry coming off long-term contracts just to smooth those things. We don't have it here. As a result, it's a really tricky time. And so I'd really call for anybody who's doing this stuff, do, it, do that transition work first and make sure you've got it in place rather than plan the catch-up. Because if it's not managed carefully, there's backlash from industry, from the community around pricing. And at the moment, it's a really feisty debate in South Australia with people just leaping at the chance to blame wind and solar for, for pricing. And baseload is, is, is lodged deep in our, our, our psyche. And we're in uncharted waters here in South Australia. So we've got big challenges, but even bigger opportunities. There are some plenty of bright lights and examples of positive transition. We've got Australia's only domestic uh, producer of, of solar panels, Tindo Solar, are looking to expand. We've got companies like Heliostat SA, which was spun out of, of, a, of a company which used to supply parts for Holdens. With that factory closing down, they're now supplying um, parts for solar thermal. The great story of Port Augusta, uh, so this is the town that was hit, hit with, with, with coal in terms of health, now with unemployment because of a coal-fired power station closing down. They are now looking at and calling for, from the community, solar thermal plant to replace that. They've got sundrop farms down, down the road, which is a massive big greenhouse in the middle of, of the desert, using solar to desalinate salt water to, to produce tomatoes for coals. Another really great story. We've got great grid storage trials, lots of things happening. The list goes on. And fascinatingly... We've got a shift in electoral politics. So you've got a third of all houses in the next 12 months or so who all have solar and all can talk to their politicians. And what difference can that make? Right now, all eyes are on us. We're a Petri dish. We're a real-life lab experiment around this. And we really feel it. There's a lot riding on us. There's a huge responsibility. If we get it right, what a gift to the world. What a story to tell. But if we stuff it up, if there's retreat because of fear, if technically if we don't get it right, if we don't share the, share the, the, the results amongst everyone, that narrative around failure um, takes place here and everywhere else. But I'm incredibly confident we can do it. We have a rich history of social innovation in South Australia. We're the, the first place in the world where women could stand for parliament, the second place in the world after New Zealand where women uh, actually could vote. Uh, we've got leaders around gay law reform, all sorts of things. Time's up. I've got a minute to go. We're not afraid to be pioneers and do things differently. It's a little-known fact that we're the only place in the world where a milk drink outsells Coke and other, other colas. So the big question is, strategic incre incrementalism versus demanding the whole hog. While our penetration was lower, I would have said 
incrementalism is a really sensible policy. But as a result of our real-life experiment about where we've, we've come to, we need a roadmap. We need a really clear and solid statement about where we're going, a clear and solid path. Industry needs direction for investment. People need reassurance about, uh, is someone in control of this? Is this right? Is it supposed to be happening this way? And we need to know the, the destination, the process of bringing the industry, the community, the government, unions, all doing it, all working together to make it happen. And we need courage from leadership to make it through the, this change process. Otherwise, people won't trust and they'll fall back to what they know, which is baseload, it's, it's coal, it's gas. South Australia, my state, has an amazing opportunity to show what's possible and I get incredibly excited about what a gift that will be for our precious world. Thank you. Uh, Miwa Tomonaga is from an organisation that has done more than most to really plant the flag for the idea of the possibility of a 100% renewable future for Australia. So she's been volunteering for Beyond Zero Emissions since 2007. Beyond Zero Emissions was the first organisation in Australia and arguably the world to advocate for not only zero emissions but also drawdown of atmospheric carbon to go beyond zero. So this surely must make Victoria the leader in the race for 100% renewable energy. And it surely must mean that demanding the full 100% goal is the only way to go. I look forward to Sustainable Living Festival every year and it must be the highlight of the climate movement calendar. However, a small problem is that we're often preaching to the converted. So many of you may have heard a lot of this before. Um, there is much we can learn from the no compromises approach of BZE and it's a great strategy that groups around the world are now copying. So from my volunteer point of view, it's a story of what started as a volunteer group of grassroots activists in Melbourne and, and now has totally changed the way the world frames climate solutions. So for those of you that don't know, BZE is a not-for-profit research and education organisation known for its work in designing and implementing a zero emissions economy for Australia. The BZD's goal is to transform Australia from a 19th century fossil fuel-based emissions-intensive economy to a 21st century renewable energy clean tech economy. So BZD was founded in 2006 right here in Melbourne by Matthew Wright and Adrian Whitehead. Like most volunteers who joined BZD around that time, I had been awestruck by one of Matt's inspirational presentations about a zero-emissions future run on 100% renewable energy for electricity, buildings, transport, and the whole economy and using all commercially available technology. I'd always been interested in environmental issues from a young age. My mum and dad had migrated from Japan to work in an Australian joint venture company in pearl culture. So yes, that's oyster pearls. So I was brought up to value nature and the environment, and I knew my family's livelihood depended on the untouched, pristine waters of northern Australia. As an adult, the turning point when I realised we are facing a global climate emergency came to me after seeing Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. And in a short time after, I was lucky to see David Suzuki speak about his life of environmental activism. Um, that was while he was promoting his autobiography. 
It was easy to be interested in climate change issues, but it was entirely another thing to be an activist. So back then, all the environmental groups were busy communicating the climate emergency and the science. VZD was already at the next step, creating the solutions. What made VZD different was the no compromise strategy, or going the whole hog. Some NGOs complained that this strategy was way too extreme to be able to make any changes. And I remember a few times where Matt stooged offices of coal, oil and gas corporations, CEOs and sprung hard-hitting audience questions on them during public presentations. And at the time, Matt and Adrian were known as the bad boys of the climate movement. But now it's called non-violent direct action. So in 2007, Matt Wright and Marco created the first transition to zero emissions plan for Victoria. This was a precursor to the whole of Australia plan for 100% renewables. Uh, admittedly, Victoria has a lot of catching up to do now since the former Victorian, um, yeah, since the former um, Victorian renewable energy target was dismantled by the previous government. Currently, renewable energy contributes about 14% of Victoria's electricity supply comprising of wind, hydro and smaller contributions of bioenergy and solar. The majority of Victoria's electricity, a whopping 85%, is generated by brown coal um, with small contributions of gas peaking plants. There's a huge potential for renewable energy projects in Victoria. VZD advocates for 100% renewable energy as soon as possible. And we've already shown that this is technically and economically feasible. In June 2010, um, BZE launched the Zero Carbon Australia um, Station Energy Plan, which outlines the technically feasible and eco economically costed way for Australia to transition to 100% renewable energy in 10 years. Uh, the Station Energy Plan is a few years old now, and the technology mix of the super-fast advancing renewable energy industry has changed in that time. But I'll go about... I'll talk about the solutions... Um, in a general way. To so, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of really amazing technologies available um, all to achieve 100% renewable energy. So number one, 24-hour solar power. Australia has the best solar resource of any developed country. This is where we have utility-scale concentrating solar thermal or CST power towers with molten salt heat storage. Um, visit the VZD stall over the weekend and you can see Martin's scale model of the 24-hour baseload solar plant. It works using mirrors to concentrate sunlight onto a receiver, then store the generated heat in molten salt storage tanks. And the heat can be dispatched when required and it just boils water, creating steam and drives conventional steam turbine. And the power is dispatched and is available day or night. Um, CST plants with storage are in operation around the US and Europe, particularly in, particularly in Spain, and we hope to see Australia's first CST plant in Port Augusta in South Australia. Um, number two is wind power, which is commercially proven technology all over the world, and we all know about that. So we'll move on to number three, building energy efficiency. So this re represents the lowest hanging fruit of energy savings from the Zero Carbon Australia Buildings Plan. Based on this Australian-wide research, Richard Keach um, has written a book called The Energy Freedom Home, and this empowers everyday people to save energy in their own home through nine easy steps. So it shows you how you can achieve a comfortable, energy-efficient home that costs nothing to run. Examples include 
insulating your home to cut your heating use by 80% or draft proofing to cut your winter heat loss by 25% or LED down lights to save 80% compared to halogens. Um, Number four would be transition from gas to electric. BZE has shown that zero emissions buildings not running on gas is possible and and that's what we should be aiming for. Number five is heat pumps running on renewable energy for space heating and hot water. So using a reverse cycle air conditioner during winter is a better alternative than gas heating. Tim Forsey um, calls this economic fuel switching. So Tim is an energy advisor at the University of Melbourne and a long-time BZE volunteer. Um, I was amazed when I heard him talking on commercial radio station 3AW. He was teaching Neil Mitchell about how heat pumps work and about coefficient of performance. So this really showed me that the mainstream are picking up these new ideas and the idea that it can be cheaper to heat your home with reverse cycle air conditioners is better than um, using gas. Um, Number six would be solar and storage. So unless you've been hiding in a hole for the last six months, you would have been swept away by the marketing machine of the Tesla Powerwall battery. So with the combination of high electricity prices and um, excellent solar resource, Australia is leading the world in storage technology. And this allows households to store solar power they generate during um, the day. This is really exciting and it's an an example how VZE has also pushed other um, organisations to advocate for zero emissions. For example, Solar Citizens, born out of the 100% Renewables campaign, um, are running a solar supercharge conference right um, over this weekend as well. So it's a national action summit for a clean energy future. And BZE CEO, Dr. Stephen Bygraves, is delivering a keynote speech there tomorrow. So we have all these solutions. We just need to make them happen. And in the 10 years that BZE... um, So in the the 10 years, BZE has moved the debate around 100% renewable energy and zero emissions from radical to mainstream. BZE has also shown that... Electric high-speed rail remains a commercial proposition and the importance of the land use sector as the only sector to bring us to beyond zero emissions. And we're also doing um, research into converting entire passenger fleets to electric vehicles um, and showing about the ongoing economic risks of relying on fossil fuels, particularly coal, for our economic prosperity in a decarbonising world. Um, And there's also the latest report, Renewable Energy Superpower, which shows the economic opportunity that will come from Australia utilising its full renewable energy resource. So in the last 10 years, 100% renewable energy is really now the new global normal. And and this has proved that this, this strategy is working. And in Victoria, we're really lucky to have political leaders from the Greens in both state and federal parliaments. So Ellen Sandal, Adam Bant, Janet Rice and other Green senators, they all need us to push them the whole hog to 100% renewables. So we can't be talking anymore about 50%, 80% or 90% targets. We really need to be pushing for 100% and nothing less. 
So for the people who were in my position a few years ago, it's great you care and have done everything you can in your own home, but what can you do next? Well, 2016 is a big election year and is a perfect time to volunteer for a grassroots group and get active. I have learnt so many skills and I'm lucky to volunteer with the most amazing team of people who really want to make a difference. You really need to push yourself out of, the, out of your comfort zone and that's why I'm here, standing here today. 100% um, renewables is really must be the new global normal. There are many challenges to come, but we are winning. If we can build this global movement together, we'll win. Thanks very much. Hey, are you curious? Do you want to see how a busy radio station works? Do you want to know how over 300 broadcasters come together to produce radio 24-7? Are you interested in seeing the inside of a radio studio? Or do you want to find out more about 3CR's unique radio philosophy? Let me take you on a station tour. For $90, 3CR offers one-hour radio station tour for groups at a time that suits you. Radio, live transmission. So if you're part of a community organization, student group, or institution, give 3CR a call on 94198377. For more information about radio station tours at 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au and click on Station Tours. Our next speaker is Cassie O'Connor, MP, the leader of the Tasmanian Greens and MP for Denison. Thanks, Miriam, and g'day, everyone. I'm not going to tell you how it's done. I'm just going to talk to you about how we had a crack at it. Um, before I begin, I wish to pay my respects to uh, the first people of the land we're meeting on today, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, uh, to acknowledge their elders past and present and uh, acknowledge the first Australians as the original owners and custodians of this beautiful country we all call home. So in Tasmania right now, and you're not allowed to clap at this because it sounds good, but it's not, uh, we are powered by 100% renewable right now, pretty much. And the reason that that's not such good news is because um, there's a cable that connects Tasmania to Victoria called Basslink, and in late December it broke somewhere, and we still don't know where the break is. So um, the great news is we're not sucking dirty brown coal power out of the Latrobe Valley. Um, <laughs> before it was built, we were actually 100% renewable, pretty much. Um, but the bad news is, of course, that now our hydro storages are down around uh, 18%. Uh, we've got maybe two months of power left in the hydro dams, but relax, everyone, because the Conservative government in Tasmania is going to fire up the diesel generators. So everything's going to be OK. We have a very conservative uh, government uh, in Tasmania at the moment, and despite the fact that they dismantled a lot of good work that was done by um, the Labor-Green power-sharing government, there's nothing they can do about the 170,000 hectares that was added to the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area. There's nothing they can do about 
about the half a million hectares, uh, which is now set aside from logging. There's nothing they can do about the 9,500 energy efficiency upgrades we delivered to low-income households, community groups and small businesses. They can't deny the fact that the science is there now to tell us that there's about 4.3 billion tonnes of um, carbon dioxide store, stored in Tasmania's forests, and their own government departments are now applying livability principles to all new developments. So you can make change in politics. Uh, some of it will be enduring. Some of it will be dis, uh, dissembled uh, by the people who come after you. And it's how uh, you implement those policies and embed them as much as possible, I think, that makes the difference. So in March 2010, something quite amazing happened in Tasmania. I don't think the voters will do this again in any great rush, but they elected uh, 10 Liberal, 10 Labor and 5 Green MPs to the House of Assembly. So we had a perfectly balanced parliament and for the first time Greens ministers were brought into uh, a cabinet in Australia and I was really lucky, um, blessed to be, have been one of those ministers and the other was um, Senator Nick McKim who's Janet Rice's colleague in Canberra now. And um, it was quite an extraordinary journey because I had no idea how powerful a minister is um, until well after I became a minister. Um, partly because it's not in the public service's interest to train you particularly well in flexing your power. Uh, and um, I learnt that the hard way because we came in knowing that we only had four years. It would be a long time before there'd be Greens ministers uh, in government again, probably anywhere in the country. Uh, so we set about implementing Greens policies and values um, up against the Labor Party's resistance at times, up against a bureaucracy that is um, in some ways just has a, a slight culture of inertia. Uh, and I uh, said to the Departmental Secretary of Health and Human Services one day, we're going to roll out energy efficiency in public and community housing. He said, oh no, Minister, we can't do that. There's an equity problem there. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's 11,500 households uh, and we can't do them all at once and it's a basic principle of service delivery uh, that uh, you need to have equity in your policy. And I said, well, how about this? I won't name him just in case he's somewhere or no, known to someone. I said, how about this? You ask the department to do the work, to model how we can do it. We've got some money out of labour. We can deliver this through housing. Um, could you just come back and show us how it can be done? Three briefs later, telling us how it couldn't be done, my wonderful then head of office, Leanne Minchell, who now works for Greenpeace uh, in Amsterdam, said, Dave, Cassie's the minister. You're going to do this. And he said, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, so <laughs> we ended up rolling out um, energy efficiency upgrades through the public housing stock uh, into community housing, um, community groups and small business. And we did it with a relatively modest sum of money using the um, levers of a department, uh, tapping into some other departmental budget. Uh, we did an audit of the energy of, uh, of... We did an audit of the stock first, most of which we found to be about one to one and a half star energy efficiency. So we knew what we were dealing with. Um, we had a staged program and we engaged these fantastic people from Sustainable Living Tasmania to roll it out across the state. And we went into people's households and some of the upgrades were quite straightforward. Uh, they were draft uh, saving devices. We insulated hot water systems. We put in water saving devices. Uh, and others were more comprehensive where we 
basically insulated the whole house, uh, replaced the old um, electric heaters with heat pumps uh, and created um, a quality in our stock uh, that hadn't been seen before in Tasmania. But more importantly than that, we really engaged our tenants uh, in the mission that we're on. And we had this kind of, it wasn't an incentive program, but we had our energy champions where um, Housing Tasmania and Sustainable Living Tas worked really closely with our tenants uh, to show them what energy savings they were. And I had, I had a number of our beautiful tenants come up to me over the course of my life as a minister um, with tears in their eyes, so thankful because their power bills had gone down um, by between three and $800 a year. And we, I mean, that is, that's tangible enough. That's a fantastic social outcome. But these tenants also knew that they were bringing down Tasmania's emissions, that they were contributing to a cleaner Tasmania. And um, I really hope that we can see this sort of energy efficiency program rolled out across the country. We're going to do some work um, in making sure that other um, parliaments in other nations uh, get this model because all the bureaucratic infrastructure is in place. At the same time as we were rolling out the energy efficiency, we were building new stock through Housing Tasmania, which hadn't, the first time I asked the head of housing what livability principles were applied to social and affordable housing developments, he looked blankly at me. Um, and uh, so I asked the state architect at the time to come up with a livability strategy for social and affordable housing for all new developments and all infill developments in Tasmania. And it is now standard operating procedure for Housing Tasmania uh, when they're building new social housing uh, to aim for the highest level of energy efficiency. Um, the three major complexes that we built uh, when I was minister were all seven seven and a half star energy efficiency, uh, but you've seen a change in culture. So when we talk about um, do you go for the whole hog or do you um, approach this in a strategically incremental way, I think you have to do both. Um, you have to uh, paint the picture, set the vision and then take the steps along the way uh, that get you there and take people with you. And there was another wonderful bureaucrat who now unfortunately is working for the dark side, but very early uh, in uh, our careers as Minister, he got us onto the Harvard School of Business Change Management Code, uh, and this is by Professor Cotter, and there are basic five steps uh, to making the sort of change that we need to see in Australia so we will be 100% renewable, uh, we will be a highly energy efficient um, and innovative nation, uh, that is create a sense of urgency and make it clear that the status quo is no longer an option. Uh, pull together a really strong uh, guiding coalition of influential people, not powerful or wealthy people, people know, who know how to get stuff done and engage with the community. Uh, create and communicate a, complete, a clear and compelling case for change. Remove the obstacles to change happening, and that might be um, the regulations that are set around uh, wind or solar farms, for example, uh, and create short-term wins to motivate people with early successes. So I think that does bring together um, the two sides of the argument we're not really having here tonight, uh, which is set a goal and then just get on with it. Um, and then just in the last minute that I have, the overarching framework for all of the work that we did was um, the Climate Smart 2020 strategy, which was the first time a, an Australian government had um, pulled together people like scientists, community groups, environmental organisations and the major industrials 
and the Labor Party um, and got them to support the goal of 100% renewable by 2020, got them to support an interim emissions reduction target, uh, got them to buy into about 80 actions uh, required of government agencies, working with the community, working with the major industrials and small business. Uh, it became embedded in government policy and we did little things like put in departmental secretaries. Uh, they come to the minister at the end of the year and they, or the beginning of the year and they go, what would you like me to do this year, Minister? So in the KPIs, we had, um, we'd like you to find 10% energy savings across the agency uh, over the course of the next year. Strategic incrementalism. It changed the thinking of government agencies in Tasmania. Uh, the Climate Smart Strategy, it still endures because um, there are actions in here uh, that the government of Tasmania, uh, a number of them it has abandoned, uh, but there are actions in here that government agencies are just doing these days as a matter of course. So I think you can do both. Thanks for listening. We've got Cam Walker. He's the National Campaign Coordinator at Friends of the Earth. He has been working there for so long, so long, uh, and he's still fighting. He has campaigned on so many national and international issues, and he is already here, so I'm just going to let you give him a huge round of applause before introducing him to Uh, thanks, Miriam. Um, I actually thought I was last, so I, my brain was in listen mode, and now I have to flick it over to present mode, so it might take me a minute to kind of warm it up. Um, but I do want to start just by saying, or to my mind, obviously, this is really a false conversation that we're having, because um, if you think about the threat of climate change, uh, to, to uh, quote Ross Garno, it's a wicked problem. It actually poses an existential threat to our species and to most species on the planet. A wicked problem requires a wicked solution. That is a complex solution. So I always worry when we start to get a bit absolutist and say this is the right way and that way isn't the right way. We need both these strategies, incrementalism and the whole hog, but we need all the strategies. And I think, you know, whoever you are in this room, if you're locking on to coal equipment, if you're, you're in a progressive political party, um, if you're doing uh, resilience building, if you're growing food, if you're doing old-fashioned lobbying, if you're doing community organising, if you're doing incremental campaigning, it's all part of it. And never think otherwise, but understand that each of the those roles have certain values and certain sh uh, shortcomings, and I think it's really important to understand wherever you put your, your shoulder to the wheel that, you know, there's, there's good aspects to what you do, but there's also things you can't do. You, as a, a frontline activist, you might need BZE to give you ideas on where to go. So I think that's really important. None of us are as smart as any of us. Um, or all of us are smarter than any of us, if that makes sense. Um, I guess in terms of at Friends of the Earth we often talk about radical pragmatism which is what I am going to kind of concentrate on and that is we do need incremental campaigning and we didn't just wake up one day and decide to do incremental campaigning. I think it's essential but I'll put an important caveat on it. If you just have a campaign so we walk out of here and they announce they're going to do uh, sand mining on, on the banks of the Yarra and we fight a campaign and we win, lose or draw, if at the end of that campaign we haven't built the capacity of the community to move one step closer to transition, then in a way we've failed. So I think it's really important if your style of campaigning is incrementalism, you always need to think about what happens when you look up. How does it slot into the bigger picture? And I think that that's essential. And with that caveat, then I can wholeheartedly say incremental um, 
campaigning is essential. Why we use it is just simply because of what's happened in this country in the last 15 years. Uh, in, in the mid-2000s, we had an amazing climate change movement across the country. We managed to um, influence the outcome of the federal election that saw Kevin Rudd get elected. We had that beautiful 15 minutes when it seemed like, wow, amazing things were going to happen. And then one day we woke up and we had Tony Abbott and coal is good for humanity. And I think... The climate movement took a kicking, and I think we've taken almost a decade to recover. We've taken eight or so years to recover. And I think the proof of the fact we are recovering is the People Climate March that happened last November and how astonishing that was. We're really back in the game, and I think we should take heart from that. Here in Victoria, of course, the movement was equally strong and through door-knocking by grassroots activists in the inner city, we scared the government of the day, the ALP government, that they agreed to start the conversation about phasing out the Hayeswood power station. Unfortunately, while that was happening, we had the state election, they lost the election, the coalition got in and it was a bit like they were the bad tenants who came into the house and they basically smashed everything and set it on fire. Um, they got rid of, they gutted the Climate Change Act, which we're only hopefully rebuilding now five years later. Um, they put in place the world's worst anti-wind laws. Um, they, the, the, the conversation around Hayeswood basically evaporated. We had a, a climate sceptic for a Premier and an energy minister that thought it was a great idea to export coal overseas. So, like everyone else, we kind of had to stop in our tracks and go, well, what do we do now? Um, this government doesn't care about people with a 3065 postcode. They didn't care. They patently did not care about climate change. They did not give a rat's ass about the environment. You know, we could go to them and knock on the door. They didn't even want to meet with us. And it was like, well, we have to do something new. And so we looked around, and um, there were some things that were pretty obvious. And in regional Victoria, we realised that a quarter of our state was under exploration licence for unconventional gas, coal seam gas, tight gas, shale gas, and all sorts of crazy coal to other things projects, coal to gas and coal to fertiliser. So we started to work out there, and at the same time we realised that the anti-wind laws had basically stopped the renewable energy sector in our state. So if you like, we had an anti-campaign and a pro-campaign. The anti-campaign was the unconventional coal and gas campaign, and we struggled a bit. We came up with a model that worked really well. It was based on the work of Annie Keir from Lock the Gate and others in New South Wales. It's the gas-free organising model, and it's predicated on us, perhaps as Community X, we're in Poowong in Gippsland, and we've come here to night because we want to tell you about what's going on with a threat to your community and we had what we used to call the A-team, we had um, Doctors for the Environment, we had uh, Environmental Justice Australia, we had this amazing groundwater um, expert from Monash Uni and they'd tell the story and then we'd give the stump, the stump speech and say here's a model we think we can use to stop this and then we'd meet as a group and they would go out and if they adopted this model they would go and door knock their entire community as they define their community around a very simple question. There's a threat to us. Do you support us declaring ourselves coal free or gas free depending on the threat? And um, the results were astounding. Um, I think in Ballara they got 86 or 88 percent support, but everywhere else it was over 90. In some places it was very close to 100 percent. 
Amazing, yeah. 72 communities have already declared, and there's uh, another one coming this weekend. Um, and it basically reformed the political landscape in Victoria. And in it was a slow build, but in the build-up to the state election, we shifted all the parties. We shifted the Farmers' Federation. We shifted the coalition. We got independents on board. Of course, the Greens were there from the start, and we shifted the ALP. And basically, we utterly shifted the terrain. And the declarations had no legal power, but they had incredible moral power because they basically said the fossil fuel industry has no licence to operate here and they will not be able to step a, a foot in our community. And it basically you know, sent shockwaves through the political establishment. Since 2012, we've stopped that industry in its tracks here in, in Victoria. And I reckon that's bloody fantastic. Campaigns, of course, don't just happen. They happen because people get off their butts and do things. And I, I actually want to acknowledge some amazing people that have worked on this campaign. Chloe Aldenhoven and Ursula Alquier and the Quick Coal uh, Group basically were the cornerstone of that campaign. And Urs, on her, if you get an email from her, she has this little quote from Drew Hutton at the bottom from Lock the Gate, and it says something like, when our leaders fail us, ordinary people must become heroes. And what I've seen in that campaign is ordinary people stepping up and, and, and saying, I'm not going to let these buggers come in and do this to my community and I'm going to fight them. And I've seen that hundreds and hundreds of times. Hundreds and hundreds of times. So I'd just like to acknowledge the heroes, some of whom are in this room, but the communities that are out there and the 72 communities that have already declared. It's been amazing. Yes to Renewables was the other arm, and we created that in 2010 when basically the anti-wind movement was in full flight. And if you listen to half of what they said, 20 miles from a wind turbine, you're going to get tumours in your brain. You know, they were just out there and they were rampaging and they were winning. And the coalition heard them and wrote, as I said before, the world's worst uh, wind laws, and they basically stopped this industry in its tracks in the state. The early stage of this was the street fighting phase, you know, going in and going to the meetings and getting up and challenging them. When we started the campaign, about 70% of news articles in the state covering wind were against wind energy. And within a year and a half, we'd switched that around to about 70% positive. And the amazing thing is... Sorry, how... I can't read that. Two minutes. Two minutes. Oh, my God. OK. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we, we turned around the public debate, but we also built power through local communities to find partners who had credibility in communities to come out and actually um, publicly advocate for renewable energy. And again, we shifted the terrain and the ALP, one of the things, in fact, the, the main thing that they took um, to the state election in 2014 on the environment was a commitment to rewrite those laws. It would not have happened um, unless we'd run that campaign. And just as an example of how effective it can be, Lee Eubank, who's been the coordinator of the, the Yes to Renewables campaign for a good couple of years now, um, gave me this figure today. In New South Wales, when they asked um, for people to write submissions uh, giving an opinion about the roadmap up there, the renewable energy roadmap, they got about 120 submissions from groups and individuals in the community. Here in Victoria, we got 1,400 so 10 times that. And I think we can hand on heart actually say that was because we were out there and we were telling people the facts of the matter, we were dispelling the myths and we were challenging the antis and we actually won. And now, any minute now, we're going to hear what the, re the renewable energy target will be. I'll, I'll cut a long chase to a short end because that has gone very fast. Um, but I, I did just want to kind of go through this and say... Um, 
we've won tangible things. We've got a Victorian renewable energy target. We've stopped the industry in the state in terms of the unconventional gas industry and we're in with a very good chance to get a permanent ban within the next two months. We'll know whether that's going to happen or not. Um, and we've restarted the renewable energy uh, industry here. But I don't think you can, ju you can judge those campaigns just on their short-term outcome. It's much deeper than that. I think that through these campaigns we've mobilised thousands of people who have never been active before. And if I had the time I'd talk about George Lakoff and his work about framing. Progressives love to go, oh, the facts and figures and if we do something we're doomed. Conservatives have often won by having a narrative that talks about other values. These have been values-based campaigns. We talk about love of place, of community, of family, of water, of climate. And it's actually weave together a really powerful narrative and a really powerful dynamic. We started by meeting people where they were, not bringing our ideology with us, finding common cause and working up from there. Campaigns that started has been about coal and gas and now campaigns about renewables and, and climate change in very conservative communities where people didn't want to talk about that stuff. We've seen the transformation in hundreds and hundreds of lives. Um, this approach, I think, is rich, it's strong, and very significantly, it inherently builds community. And without resilient communities, any individual campaign is just deck chairs on the Titanic. We've got 80 groups now that are active. We're getting close to an outcome on both the VRET and the unconventional gas. And I think it's important to understand this is a movement that didn't exist in 2010. It's changed the debate about energy in Victoria. Its victories are real and tangible. And a big part of me feels that they're only just getting going. They're just getting ahead of steam. And it's important to remember that none of this would have happened without incremental campaigning. So we need to look big. We need to see where we're going. We need to read the climate science and understand the absolute urgency of the scenario. But we need real campaigns in real communities, meeting people where they are and starting from there. And without that, I really don't think we're going to get anywhere. So thanks for having a listen. This is Janet Rice. She's the Senator of Victoria. She's been a passionate environmentalist and activist for over 30 years. Uh, she's a climate... And hello, everyone. It's great to be here at the Great Debate and on the land of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people. And I acknowledge their elders and remind ourselves that this is, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So the race to 100% renewables is on. The race to get us all to a finishing line of 100% renewables as quickly as possible when we flick the switch and all of Australia is lit up, heated, cooled and powered by renewable energy. I'm a big bike rider, so I thought, let's compare it to a cycling race with the finish line on the other side of the mountain. But it's no ordinary race. You see, to win the race, we've got to get all the competitors, people, organisations, governments, over the finishing line. Once we get critical mass to the top then it's going to be an easy ride, absolutely speeding downhill to the finish line. But right now, those of us that are out the front are doing the hard work going up the hill and the rest are dragging behind. We are riding up the hill, building a groundswell up the front of people, organisations, businesses, BZEs, South Australians, who are committed to getting to 100% renewable energy as fast as possible. We're investing in renewables ourselves, supporting our communities to invest, and critically, we have got the vision and the courage to be voting for 100% renewables. And we are doing our best to get people to come along with us politically, 
because at the end of the day, we will not reach 100% renewables without governments legislating for it to happen. The Greens are right out the front of the political pack. We've set up a plan, Renew Australia, which has a target of 90% of our energy by 2030 and 100% as soon as possible. Once we are speeding along towards 90%, I know that we will power past it and reach 100% clean energy, no sweat. Labor, of course, is being left behind. They are carrying some very heavy and worn-out black baggage. While they're behind, the rest of us are doing the hard work into a strong headwind. And with their target of 50% renewables by 2030, it really is difficult to see them getting over the top of the mountain. And the Lib Nats, of course, are still at the start line, many of them having smoke, shrouded in coal dust. They've just had to replace some of their riders, though, but they've got a long way to catch up. So our challenge is to encourage those behind us that it's going to be a lot easier for them later on if they put the effort in and catch up to us. And the moment we realise that we are all in this together will make it a lot easier to get over the top of the mountain. And politically, this means making it clear to Labor and the Coalition that they will not get elected if they don't start peddling harder. That if they don't, if they don't have the vision and the courage to take, on, take us to 100% clean energy, we will be seeing Prime Minister Richard Di Natale in the not-too-distant future. So for Labor... <laughs> So for Labor, this means shedding the baggage that's holding them back. And for the Liberals, it means rejuvenating their ranks with some younger 21st century members. Both need to catch up, otherwise there'll be no point in the rest of us, those of us with carbon-neutral houses and businesses, crossing over the top of the mountain and down to the finish line. Once we all make it over the top of the mountain, we will power along, speeding up as we go. Renewables will quickly replace our fossil fuel-fired power stations. And one day, much sooner than anybody at the moment thinks is possible, we will storm through the finish line. Yeah, there'll still be some grumpy old curmudgeons sort of dragging up, being dragged across the line, but there'll always be people like that. The race I've described involves both going the whole hog and strategic incrementalism. So, like Cassie, yes, I think we must both be consensus politicians. I believe that there must be room for many voices in this race, supporting each other as an ecosystem, connecting with many different people in the community. For some of us, those out the front, it doesn't matter that the journey seemed impossible at the beginning. We are so motivated to act because we know how important it is. That importance trumps all. We tell ourselves, yes, we can. If you don't fight, you lose. And if we sometimes have thoughts sneaking up on us that it really is all an impossible dream, then we do our best to put that thought out of mind, suspend disbelief and get back to it. I mean, some people excel at staying motivated, focused, with disbelief suspended, and they are absolute heroes. They were the ones that got us to the moon, that won the war. Some of us try and suspend disbelief, head off for a while on that journey to follow that star, but get disheartened. The disbelief keeps falling down from where we had it suspended. It knocks us around the head. Because most people have to believe that something's possible to act to try and achieve it. And that the more important the action is, and the easier or more enjoyable it is to take that action, the higher the motivation to do it. 
And if all three of those elements, possibility, importance and ease of taking action are high, then motivation and willingness to act will be high. The converse, the motivation to act to do something that you think is impossible, not important and really hard to do, will be rock bottom. And Liberal government, I'm looking at you. I mean, almost all of us in this room think that getting to 100% renewables right across the country is going to be hard. But most of us in this room are still motivated to work towards that, though, because we understand why it's so important. And we also know that we won't get there with a government that's convinced that Australia's future wellbeing requires us to keep on digging up and selling coal. But we are only a small proportion of the community. And sadly, the majority of the Australian community think differently. They reckon that 100% renewables in the foreseeable future is impossible. And any community organisation or political party presenting this aim to them is seen as not credible. Off in la-la land. So how then do we increase people's willingness to join the race to 100%? Now I think it's by working on all three of those elements, possibility, importance and ease of action. Importance and ease of action are pretty simple. I mean, working on importance is the stuff that we do all the time. Educating people so they have the courage and vision to take action. Helping people to feel the immediacy, the threat, the the risks of global warming. And making real that we do need to act so that we as a society can continue to have a good life and so that our children have a future. That this is bloody serious. And that having a clean and safe world where we and the rest of nature can thrive is worth striving for. Working on ease of taking action includes overcoming both technical and social barriers, so developing the technology and building community networks so that people are part of the groundswell, so their friends and neighbours and their family are taking action as well. But I reckon the crux of the debate that we're having here tonight is about possibility how we get people to believe that it's possible for us as a society to take that required action. And fundamentally, I believe that we're having this debate precisely because so many of us have a sense of how important taking action is, that we project that onto everybody else and we discount how for others having a high sense of possibility is critically important. We are the, the early adopters, the visionaries, the riders at the front of the pack, trying to encourage the others, but we are yelling across the chasm at the majority. And going the whole hog means pitching to people that we are aiming for something that most of them think is impossible. I believe in going the whole hog. I suspend disbelief every day, but I don't believe that saying so works as a communication tool for the vast majority of the population. Absolutely it's worth some people and organisations making the pitch, because it will entice other early adopters to get on board. But for most people, we need to be building their sense of of possibility as well as importance and ease of action if we're going to get them riding alongside us, believing it's possible to get over that mountain. They will join us when enough renewables have been built, which I think is the case in South Australia, or when people they trust or the political party they vote for have started peddling as hard as they must. But of course, we've got to get to that stage as fast as possible. The risk of strategic incrementalism, of course, is if the majority take too long, we leave a minority stranded at the top. If we fail to get people, all us people over the hill, the planet is cooked. 
I reckon the Greens target of 90% by renewables by 2030 and 100% as soon as possible is consistent with 100% as soon as possible, given where the the community is currently at. I reckon that the Labor Party position, of course, of 50% by 2030 is not and is driven much more by oil companies and coal and gas miners who happen to give a lot of money to them. And, of course, the Libs are going to have to be dragged forwards or just totally left behind forever. But, yeah, that's our challenge, and I really look forward to meeting it with all of you. That's it for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. You're listening to Radio 3CR. Stay tuned for Save Albert Park.